Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. Wow, guys, thank you. Welcome to a super special bonus episode of The Truth About True Crime. I am Amanda Knox, and we are recording this live from the Death Becomes Us Festival here in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, I'm wearing my special not guilty socks that Chris got for me for Christmas. And uh, today I'll be speaking with someone who has been both a victim and a defendant in one of the most sensationalized, complicated, and utterly misunderstood crimes of the last 30 years. Her name is Lorena Gallo, but you probably know her by her former married name, Lorena Bobbitt. In 1993, after suffering years of domestic violence and sexual abuse by her then-husband, John, she did something that shocked us all. She made worldwide headlines, and that turned her into a target for abuse, harassment, and the casual cruelty of most of us, especially comedians and started this long overdue conversation about marital rape and abuse. She cut off his dick. (laughs) Despite this feminist call to action, the legacy of this incident in the last few decades has been disappointing. Lorena's abuse was minimized and she was reduced to a punchline. That is finally changing now, in part because of the awakening of Me Too, but mostly because of Lorena, because she has had the courage to reclaim her identity, her narrative, her legacy, and she's become an advocate for other battered women. So I am honored to share the stage with her. So please help me in welcoming Lorena Gallo. Get that microphone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sitting on it. Yes. So, 
So um, how does it feel to be sharing the stage with Foxy Noxy? Uh, you know what? I love your socks, by the way. Thank you. So I feel honored. It's, it's an honor to be here. And I'm so proud of your accomplishments. And this is something that we need to do more often. Yes. Yeah, this is kind of, I don't know, I, I have never witnessed this before. Have, yeah. have you guys ever seen two shamed and vilified women yeah. sharing the same space with each other? No, never, no, it's not, it's not super, yeah, yeah right? <laughs> um, so the thing that really struck me about when I spoke, first spoke to you was we have a startling number of things in common I mean, yes. you were trapped in an abusive relationship for four years. Yes. I was trapped in prison for four years. Four years. Basically the same. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> Maybe you had it worse, though, because this was someone you loved, and I just had strangers abusing me. So. Well, that's not so much the difference. I mean, due to the, my case, obviously. I mean, it was just resonates through the whole world, and, um, you know... It, it was really difficult to go through. I mean, domestic violence, sexual assault is definitely not a joke. It's very traumatic. And, uh, you know, I have dedicated my life now to help those in that situation. And thanks to my foundation and Lorena Gallo Foundation, this is exactly what I do. And I'm, I'm an advocate and I'm an activist to fight against an awareness of domestic violence and sexual assault. Thank you. Another thing you pointed out to me is that one of the things that complicated your case as well as mine is that we were both foreigners. Yes. I was studying abroad. You had immigrated here from Ecuador. Yes. With no family here, basically. And uh, I have to go through the whole ordeal by myself. I mean, I, I have people, you know, friends and acquaintances, but it's not the same, you know, with the love and support of family. And, uh, you know, you need that. You you need uh, to be close to your family in those uh, situations like that when you most need it. They were not here, they're in Venezuela. And it was very scary. The language barrier uh, was very difficult. You know, I just came and I was uh, enrolled in ESA class. And uh, obviously I, I didn't have much to actually develop a conversation in, in English. And uh, so it was very difficult. Yeah, being interrogated yeah. was super fun, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a true crime podcast. And a thing of note is that there are several crimes at the heart of this story. Um, and I'm not going to dedicate this hour that we have together to procedural details because you can actually go see the amazing Amazon documentary, Lorena, if you haven't already. It's amazing. Um, Thank you. So I want to dedicate this to your perspective, your experience, and I just want to briefly cover what happened for any of those who are here who are not familiar and you don't have to raise your hands because I actually can't see you anyway. I'm sorry. It's really dark out there. <laughs> and um, for, for also for those who are, you know, the millennials, the younger, I know there's a lot of young people here, so they don't know my case. They, they're not familiar with, you know, they're, my goodness, Jordan Peele was 13 years old when you know, back yeah. then. So in my director, so in here he is, you know, a grown-up man uh, making, you know, movies about social issues. So that's very good. So it's right. good for now. So you got married to John Wayne Bobbitt yes. on June 18th, 1989, when you were 20 years old. Yes. 
And for four years, he subjected you to near constant emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. That's correct. Yes. And it was only finally in June 23rd, 1999, that he sexually abused you for the last time. You snapped. Yes. yes. You cut it off. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you fled. You fled home because you were scared. Yes. After uh, being abused for years, obviously, uh, my mind wasn't, you know, in, I mean, it's, it's called insanity for a reason. Um, so there was a lot of mental abuse, emotional abuse. And, you know, this has happened when um, an abuse victim goes through. And that's exactly what I wanted to do, you know, the documentary to show how vulnerable victims are. But also I wanted to show how predators and abusers, how mean and how can they destroy a person and, and how can actually drive a person insane. Um, so that was part of, you know, for me to do in that documentary. And yes, I snap and this, this is a part of the abuse. So when your senses sort of came back to you, the first thing you did was you called 911, you explained what happened, they found his penis, they reattached it. So he's in one piece. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And the result of this is that both you and John faced criminal charges for the events of that evening. Yes, I was charged with uh, malicious wounding and that actually didn't know what to charge him because um, I can't believe I'm talking about this because it made me upset that back then, 26 years earlier, uh, Virginians didn't know that a man can actually rape their wife. So... We were living with a mentality, you know, that uh, lay, it just belongs to, you know, the prehistorical, you know, mentality, I, I should call it. But um, so they charged him with sexual assault. And so he, of course, got acquitted. And uh, that was his first round of a trial. So that to me meant that, wow, you know, what am I going to do? You know, what, what's going on? You know, what's going to happen to me? I mean, am I going to face 20 years in jail if I'm going to be convicted? So my attorneys, which they were wonderful, of course, and there's a lady attorney who actually was the person who I, I had to talk to, you know, very intimate details because it was very intimidating to talk to male attorneys for me about my case. You know, there's a lot of things in detail that I have to cover in order for them to put the defense. So it was very difficult for me. And um, at that time, you know, he was acquitted of his charges. And for me, what was going to happen to me? You know, what am I going to do now? And my family wasn't here of course, they were in South America, and I was afraid. I was emotionally drained. Uh, the media already started the bombarding, uh, you know, my house with, uh, I mean, even looking into my trash, you know. What are they going to find out? And thinking that they're going to find out something in the trash, my goodness. So the sensationalistic of it, it was just the beginning of, of a major worldwide twisted stories. And um, Right. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people don't remember that yeah. John Wayne Bobbitt yeah. had a trial. And, I, you know, that's an aspect of this story that breaks my heart for you because 
as a survivor of sexual assault, one of the more difficult things is putting yourself out there, explaining everything in detail to police officers who may not be perfectly sensitive to your experience, and then taking that case to court and having it all come to nothing. Right. I have to not only explain, you know, uh, explicit details about sexual assault, but I have to face the juror. To me, they were perfect strangers. And and the judge, too. I mean, you you know, here I am, 24-year-old, an immigrant from South America, not knowing the language much. I have a language barrier. And then I saw the judge, you know, dressed with this black robe, it was very intimidating to me. And cameras in the courtroom, court TV was there. They just started uh, broadcast and uh, antennas everywhere, every television, international TV. They were there. There were people who um, I didn't understand. They were shouting out my name, but then they started speaking like maybe in, in uh, different languages. I mean, Korea, uh, Portuguese, Italian. There was Italian television there. There was, of course, the Latin America TV there, which I understand. But at the same time, there's many languages that I couldn't understand. They were broadcasting outside of the courthouse. So that was just the beginning of it. So John's trial took place from November 8th through 10th of 1993. Yes. And it was a very fast trial because... So much of your experience with him, the evidence of your history of abuse with him was not allowed to be presented at trial. Yes. In your trial, it took place on January 10th through 22nd, 1994. And it took considerable more time because you were finally able to tell your side of the story. Right. And you were found not guilty. Yes. Um... The thing was this, that my trial was actually postponed later because of the holidays, you know. I said that, yes. And then, um, so I was supposed to be on trial like in October, November, but um, everybody was going to be on vacation, you know. And I understand the holidays are important, but I was biting my nails. I was like, I need to get this over with, you know. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And um, so we started in January during the trial. And uh, the sad part was that I was only able to tell my story from the event of what happened back five days only. And that was very unfair. On his trial, he was allowed to tell the story for whatever time and even years, you know, he could remember. But mine was different. My case was for some reason. And that's, that's a flaw in the law system, I think, because... How could you, in five days, we tell all the story of abuse and from abused women? The case was just centralized on those five days, and that was it. And, and it lasted longer. I mean, um, then I got acquittal by reason of a temporary reason of insanity. By, um, the, the juror was seven women and five men. And so that's, you know, obviously... They believe, even the persecutor believed my story. So it was very interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to get into the media's role in this, and we've been talking about the media's role in this big time. Um, But just to pause, because I've been through a trial myself, and I know how difficult that is. It is very difficult. What was the hardest part for you? Um. To go through everything, I mean, you know, like uh, dealing with, you know, the media, dealing with 
the part that I was afraid to go to jail and my goodness, just be there for 20 years and come up when I'm in my late 30s or 40s, as you said. And then um, that was very devastating to me, to people that I had the story, but um, it's just the way how the media twisted. And that was frightening too for me because I couldn't see myself, you know, telling the truth when there's many people already influenced on that story. And so that was very scary for me as well. Yeah, that sounds a little like how I felt during my appeals trial. Yes. Because yeah. I was clueless during my first trial about yes. how influential, Very influential. The, the narrative, that this, the sort of monster narrative yes. was, yeah. um, as opposed to the more truthful narrative. Absolutely. And that brings us to the media, our best yeah. friends. <laughs> Um, So you and I are members of this small exclusive club of women uh, (laughs) that no one really wants to be a part of. Monica Lewinsky is part of this club. We are shamed women who have been turned into Halloween costumes. Yes. You know, one time I was doing... Nails, because I was uh, a manicurist before, and I worked for the beauty industry for many, many years, and I love it. So one of my clients was there and asked me, and it was about uh, Halloween that week, and uh, we were approaching, you know, the Halloween party. And then she goes, like, oh, I'm going as, uh," I remember, I think, like a bumblebee or something, like an older bumblebee. And then uh, she asked me, she goes, what are you going to dress as? And I'm like... I'm going as myself, you know. <laughs> like, you were the original like, Lorena Bobbitt costume. I was just the original. <laughs> I didn't have to buy any costumes. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so we're also, um, our names crop up in rap lyrics. Yes. Yeah. Let's yes. see what we got here. Wow. Again, these are going to be, for my audio listeners, oh, wow. these are going to be uh, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Yep. Yeah. But but even better, uh, we're the women who have been the subject of uh, David Letterman's top 10 list. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And uh, he used to call me his girlfriend. He used to say, my really? girlfriend, Lorena. Yes. Really? Yes. Have you Before met him? Really? No. No. But he called me his girlfriend. It's a little forward. And I was like, <laughs> David. <"Really?"> <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. So again, I'm going to be tweeting these online for those who want to follow along once this um, is put out into the world. But for right now, you, dear audience, get to enjoy David Letterman. Um, let's talk about media. Media. Yes, our, our friend. Our friend. <laughs> our cruel, cruel friend. Um, I was five years old when all of this happened to you. Mm-hmm. And... I think there was a special kind of cruelty that was going on with Mm -hmm. me because there was like, this was 2007, there Mm -hmm. was iPhones coming out, the internet, like everyone was suddenly an expert, everyone was a one-man tabloid. Mm -hmm. But back in the 90s, what was the influence of the tabloid media on your life? It was... It was everything. I mean, they didn't only get the story right it's somebody's opinion just to sell something, you know, like they were in a hurry to sell the story, to sell lies, basically. So that to me was very responsible. Um, 
I think I think they get the picture now because they were in such a hurry. They they forgot to fact check what happened on that case, or uh, they were just very judgmental. And not only from the part of judging a person, but judging anything. And I think that the most important thing is that they knew that they had the power to influence people. But a lot of us survivors have found voices in, you know, social media now. And thanks to that, now they said, okay, well, you know, we're not going to rely on this. We have to fact check those facts because everybody can come up with a story now. And, you know, they can also get sued. So that was a big influence. And, uh, you know, back then, obviously, I couldn't get out of my house, you know, just to go to the grocery store because I was just labeled as a villain, as a right. demonic women who, you know, they totally dehumanized me, dehumanized you, dehumanized everybody. I mean, like I said, I mean, dehumanized women like Marsha Clark. Remember Marsha Clark? Remember, um, you know, even, um, like I said, Janet Reno before, uh, Tanya Harding, Monica Lewinsky, and uh, even, you know, um, what's it called? Amy Fisher. Remember Amy Fisher, the Long Island Lolita? Yeah, that, I mean, they forget that she was 16 years old and uh, Joel Butafuku basically could have been her father. And, you know, they forget about uh, statutory rape, you know, so, but Yeah, but there are a lot course, of convenient you know, forgetting. <laughs> very conveniently. And they forget a lot of things, you know, and Monica Lewinsky was a baby. I mean, you know, seduced by the president of the United States. You know, we have to... Pay attention, yeah, to those things. And obviously, in my case, there is a lot of not be able to, and they miss the whole opportunity of talking about domestic violence, sexual assault. You know, the, the whole media was like centralized in John's penis. And that was it. There's, you know, they, they forgot the core of the whole domestic violence situation. And um, that was very difficult. Yeah, they just couldn't get John's penis off their yeah. mind. It's like, who knows we, we, why? We live, in, we live in a patriarchal society, unfortunately. And uh, even now, yes. Can I get it? No. Right, get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, yeah, and, and me coming from the machismo, obviously, in South America, society as well. So it was very, I guess... I don't want to say it, I'm, I'm used to those things, but it's just like, you know, we have a lot of sexism still now and uh, defamating women was like the thing to do in the 90s, you know? Yeah, it was like a, a fun activity yes. to to just say, oh, what's the stereotype? What I've found is that it's, it's yeah. especially when you are accused, you find, like when someone is accused yes. of something, right. I've found that, all of the stereotypes that someone would never say in polite conversations suddenly just pour out onto the table. And of course, yes. hot-blooded Latina, oh, like, just very... Thanks, like, guys. Like Even racism, you know, like, wait a minute now. You know, we have come to the generation now and the Netflix come with your story and Amazon Prime come with my story and now they know the factual events. This is what happened. This is, you know, we have to take in consideration certain things and this is why you do things or commit things, you know, without us even thinking or because... You know, obviously, you don't. I don't wake up saying, "Okay, this this morning I'm just gonna, you know, severe my husband's penis," or you know, this morning just because I had a bad day. 
you don't, <laughs> you don't do that. You no. don't do that, right? Period. <laughs> Come yeah, on. I think we can agree. Let's all but, agree. So, no yeah. one should have no. any bits cut off. Exactly. Like, let's, right. no, everyone and, should and have so, their bits. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, and exactly. So, but um, at the same time, you know, um, there's things that happen, and obviously, you know, there's drama. There's um, there's a lot of emotional and domestic violence is um, is not is a serious issue. And you know, whenever I go to shows, like I went to a Steve Harvey show or any comedy, you know, knowing that there's a comedian involved. Um, you know, my goal, my mission is one thing as an advocate, you know, to shine the light against domestic violence. And no matter what I do, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. So. And yet we're like perpetually thwarted because yeah. it's like what I, what I have found is there is this constant battle to try to make the best with what life has given you, which is yes. something really difficult. Yeah. And yet to be constantly portrayed by the tabloid media, especially as this character that they have right. invested so much money in yeah. and that they have earned so much money in. Right. And I, and I, can I tell you, I recently had my heart broken a little bit. Um, well, so I was researching SNL skits because oh, of course there yes. were the SNL skits about you. Of course. But then I found out that what? Bill Hader played me in an SNL skit. <laughs> It was so sad, and I, I hope I can meet him one day to, because, like, oh, it was just a bad line. I think his line was like, "I know I'm a sex maniac, but I didn't murder anybody." And I was oh, like, "Oh, yeah. it's just too easy, guys. Oh, it's wow. not really funny." Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> or even, oh gosh, even yesterday morning, at, um, I don't know if I told you this, um, but before we were, um, we went on to Fox Five um, yesterday yes. morning, and um, yes. I got to the green room a little bit ahead of her. Yes. And there were these um, two comedians there who, when they asked me, they they didn't recognize me, and they asked me, "Oh, hey, what are you here for?" And I was like, yes. "Oh, I'm doing this true crime festival." Uh -huh. And they said, "Oh, what are you gonna do?" And I said, "Well, I usually critique the way that mm -hmm. crimes crime stories are told in the media." And they right. said, "Oh, what are you gonna, you know, like what crime?" And I was mm -hmm. like, "Well, I'm gonna be." talking to Lorena, you know, mm -hmm. Lorena Bobbitt. And they said, oh, are you going to critique whether or not she like sawed it off or cut it off? And I was like, <laughs> <My goodness>. no, <laughs> I'm going to critique the people who make fun of her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to their, to their credit, uh -huh, they so. said, oh, Mm -hmm. She's not the monster. Mm -hmm. I am. <laughs> and there was this oh, wow. beautiful learning moment. <laughs> so. That's amazing that, yeah. you know, they, but then again, I mean, you know, this is what they heard yep. from the tabloids and from the twisted stories. So we, and I said we, because you've been there and that's what we hear talking about it. Uh, we're going to have that. We're going to live our lives with that. But you know what? I found that acceptance is very important. Accept who you are, recognize who you are. And you know, our skin grows nothing but thicker and uh, resilience to be strong. And that's exactly, you know, and have hope because, you know, things are going to change. We have to definitely bridge those gaps 
to protect women and children who suffer, who are victims of these horrendous crimes in colleges, like, uh, you know, dating abuse or rape. There's going on so much in in our college campuses and universities. So... I am a mother. I know I have a child. Someday she's going to go into college and uh, I'm concerned. You know, that's what one of the things that I'm doing is, you know, to talk in you know, through my Lorena Gallo Foundation, go through universities and talk about these issues and uh, be an advocacy. You know, right now we are advocates. We're doing advocacy for those things to bring awareness on campus and domestic violence and sexual assault. So I know that my child, whenever she's going to grow into a womanhood, I want her to know that there's rights, that she has rights as a woman. And uh, these issues are never going to stop unless we do something, unless we, we make changes. So in your case, I found that there was... Sp- Special venom aimed at you by Howard Stern. Yes. <laughs> he is, he is something, you know. <laughs> he makes friends with my, my ex-husband. He uh, helped him raise like more than $250,000 for, you know, on, on his show. He put a, a show for the New Year's Eve I don't remember exactly. This was right before your trial, this wasn't it? This is right before my trial. I mean, I have to leave with that too, you know. It's like, oh my God, here he is. You know, he's having fun. He's making pornography, porno movies left and right. By the way, I haven't seen any of this porno movies. <laughs> so don't ask me about that. <laughs> so um, anyway, so he went and did this and then he went with Howard Stern. But, you know, the, the thing about Howard Stern is that, you know, he come to be as a raunchy, is that the word? Raunchy person. Raunchy, yeah. yeah. And, he likes and, to be a provocateur. Yes, and, and that's the thing. And, and, so a bully. And my... Jordan Peele, the team of Amazon Prime, wanted to contact him to actually be in the documentary because he played a part of the pop culture and they wanted to show. And by the way, they asked me if John, if it's okay for John to be in the documentary. And I said, go ahead. You know, I want him to be in the documentary. Go ahead. So Howard Stern was asked and he said, of course, no. But then Robin, who is uh, the lady who does the show with him, uh, he accepted and he said yes. And all of a sudden, when everything was prepared, you know, to be in New York and be taped and everything, she backed off and she said, oh, no, I can't do that. So she has a conflict, all of a sudden, a scheduling conflict. So, you know, that says to me a lot. But anyways, um, that part of uh, this struck me the most about Howard Stern was that, you know, he doesn't know me. He didn't know me. And again, he missed an opportunity to help others because a lot of people were talking and he dominated the TV, you know, with the whole show and everything and obviously invited John. And, you know, criticized me, vilified me, humiliate me and said nasty, nasty things about me when in part it was also dehumanizing me as a person. And, you know, to say one thing about something like he said that she was too ugly or, you, John, yeah. your, your wife is too ugly to be raped. Yeah. No, oh. even worse, he was like, she needs a little vitamin bobbit. Uh, I was just like, oh. Uh, 
So that was Howard Stern. Yeah. Yeah, I Charming. think it'll say. So what I find really incredible is that it seems like the vast majority of the media coverage about your case at the time was not actually in the public interest, right? Like there's a sort of ethics in journalism where like you decide what it is that you're going to write about and talk about Mm -hmm. and what information you're going to share fundamentally based on the idea that this is in the public interest. And the details about his penis was not in the public interest. But something that was in the public interest was this issue of domestic violence and marital sexual assault. And there were a few people who picked up on that. There was this like great feminist movement that kind of like divided the nation. There were the men who were saying, look what she did, she's a monster. And then there were women who were saying, look what he did, he's a monster. And, and- uh, Yes, automatically. The, the country was divided, uh, you know, Women were with me, and some men too, but but mostly women. And automatically men was, oh my God, look at this bitch. You know, who is she? You know, she does this to a man, my goodness. And so automatically I was hated by men. But um, it was not about that. It was not about sexism. It was not about being a feminist, uh, you know, and, and batch men or, you know, any form. Because I am, and you too, you know, I'm happy. I have a partner, you know, and uh, we have a family. So obviously I like men. And then... They're so nice. You, <laughs> <laughs> to you, you are in a good relationship. Yeah. But, yeah, so, but I mean, it's, it's not, you know, and, and my father, obviously, uh, I learned so much about him. He's such a gentleman and, you know, I love him. So uh, he was always there for me, you know. In fact, he was like, you know, from the very beginning, he told when he has a camera, you know, in South America, when they all find out that I'm from this area in Caracas, Venezuela. And then so they went and tried to film my family and then he, they have all these cameras on his face. My father was the first one who said, you know what, my daughter is innocent. Not knowing the circumstances, obviously, because she knows her, her girl, you know, she knows her daughter, she knows her little girl. And uh, so obviously, um, but, you know, going back to that conversation, the country automatically divided, you know, and it shows how we have grown from that and understood the dynamics between men and women and gender. And, you know, I think I believe that if we found a common ground for gender equality, we shouldn't have these issues. And I have a problem when they said about, you know, domestic violence is a women's issue because it's not. It's a man's issue. It's a women's issue. And, you know, all of it, it affects us, our community, our society. Yeah. That's what I think is one of the more, like, that's the sort of tragic crux of this case that went so misunderstood. It it divided people when people thought this was the act of a raging woman or they thought it was the act of a radical who was like finally doing what all the feminists had been thinking about all this time. But really, like, you were a hurt person. You were suffering from depression and PTSD and you were scared. And like, this was not a powerful thing that happened. You know, 
after all this, you know, I, I get so much respect and I do work with shelters in my community. And, you know, I seen all this. I seen women, you know, I heard about their stories and, you know, about the abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, economical abuse. They're all the same stories, just told different in different ways because we all are different, right? And our situations are unique in so many ways, but it's all the same, you know. So, but um, in reality, yes, it's, it's very humiliating to go through those things, but uh, we find somehow the strength to protect each other and to pre- mentally, you know, to become stronger. And that to me meant so much. That to me meant so the strength, to discover yourself a strength that you don't even think you have is resilience. And to become, you know, from such a tragedy to be able to actually turn it into a positive, you know, way, it's, it means so much to me. And uh, you become even stronger that way, no matter yeah. what. So... As the nation was becoming divided and you became this scapegoat for male sexual fears or you became this icon for battered women, what I found was this, the weirdly the story that carried forward was the male story, the male sexual anxiety story. And this has affected women who have become tabloid fodder because this is a sort of scapegoat mechanism that there have been plenty of men who have been shamed into exile, but goodness gracious, is it difficult to escape the tabloid fodder filter that is applied to women? I think that the media... And again, time has changed. You know, it's been, for me, it has been 26 years. Um, We have grown, we have evolved, basically. I think we have become more sensitive. We have become more empathetic and sympathetic about these issues. And, you know, I think that if my trial would have happened now, I think... John would have had a conviction because of the Me Too movement have helped to stigmatize sexual harassment, sexual assault. And we have great discussion, great conversations about in social media with all this, you know, time's up, why I left, why I stayed. And so people and women, the victims as, as well, because there's men victims too. We don't, we have to, you know, put that. But we talk about women because there's more women, right? Statistically, they're the victims, more women. So we have great conversations in social media that victims and women have found their voices. And I think that has helped a lot. And for new generations to find out too, you know. And they say, you know what, we're not going to put up with this. And that's what helped us to move on. So how do you move on? Like, how did you specifically? Because this, as you said, yes. how many years ago was this? It's, all, it's been 26. I did not used to count it, but now I do for some reason. <laughs> but uh, I count it's 26 years this past June. So the first thing I wanted to do is actually found who I was and what I'm here for. We are here on this earth for some reason. And I'm a woman of faith. And that's what helped me pull myself together. 
and also to find a community of survivors, to find a community that I can help with, that I can share my story with. And I also hear the stories. So I go to shelters and that's what helped me too. It's part of the healing process that I have. And, you know, listen to the stories and it makes me more stronger. I mean, I hear, you know, there's hope. There's a lot of things and it's, it's actually peaceful for me and therapeutic, you know, to actually know that I am helping, you know, through the storytellings because I go in shelters and they like to hear my story. They like to see how I can because I was not always so confident or whatever. But, you know, I was not confident. I was ashamed. I was, my self-esteem was down the, the ground. I was reduced to nothing thanks to my husband, ex-husband, John Bobbitt. And, you know, he did that a lot. And there's a lot of women there who needs to, you know, heal to find themselves again, you know, and, and see, wait, wait a minute, you know what? I'm worth it. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to get rid of my abuser. And so that, that helped me. It's funny you mention that because um, one of the more healing things for me was meeting other wrongfully convicted people. And I did not expect, like, I, this was, I, I was not, I was not a true crime person. Yes, I'm sorry, uh, guys. I wasn't, I wasn't. I was a poetry kid. I, like, I, yes. I didn't know about any of this. And the first time I walked into an Innocence Project event, I was invited. These men came up to me mm-hmm. and embraced me and called me little sister and told me I didn't have to explain anything. And, you know, the, this, these are brown and black men who have spent yes. years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And it's, and Sad. I, I, to not feel alone. Exactly. You do, because you're not, you're not alone. We're not alone. Yeah. And listen, can I share something with you? Yeah, yeah, and, please. Um, yeah. I have this um, from this very special lady that I tell you who it is later on after I read this. So there is um, a place for women have to write, um, you know, an article. And this was from, uh, it's called The Cut <laughs> by February 8th, 2020. You can actually... Or 2000. I'm sorry, my God, I'm ahead. 2019, 2019, I need my my glasses. Here. Oh, yeah. Of course. course. Here they are. I got LASIK. Thank you. Thank you. So, oh, yeah, 2019. (laughs) So, it says, did you hear the one about Lorena Bobbitt? Four women re-examined one of the most infamous story of the 90s. So. This is from one of the women. Yes. Okay. So this is, um, this is beautiful, actually. And she wrote, I don't remember my precise reaction, but generally speaking, I was shocked. I don't remember the important domestic violence and abuse aspect of this story being very salient in the news, or at least the news that I saw them. I wish that I had understood better. It would have made my thoughts and reactions more compassionate. I mainly remember the tabloid shock headlines and the cruel late night hosts. The facts of the story beyond the incident did not stick. 
Like many, I am so grateful we are living in times where revising stories, history, is actually a good thing. Filling in where we previously edited out or looked away. I set up a somewhat odd mental construct for myself in the last few years. Every time someone says something kind to or about me, it erases a negative comment or thought from the past that someone hurled toward me. A direct apology erases five. So with that in mind, I like to say to Lorena, I am very sorry that I didn't search the facts out more, be more compassionate, and more of an advocate instead of a mostly silent bystander. I am sorry that when you turn to society from domestic abuse, you were abused even more. You are a tough cookie. <laughs> This lady was 19 years old at that time. I was 24. Um, I was five years older than her. Her name is Monica Lewinsky. And it meant so much to me. So, Monica, I heard you. Mm. We are here together to support each other, as women should be. And uh, it's beautiful. That is beautiful. Oh, yes. Monica's the best. Yes. You met well, her, too. I did. I did. I met her. Yes. Um, yeah. You told me the story. Well, uh, God, yeah, let's geek out about Monica here. Um, I met Monica, um, so someone, the first time I was ever invited to speak in front of anyone um, at a time when I was not prepared to do anything like that, someone invited me to come speak to his group of his employees about controversy. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and he had invited other people as well. Um, and he listed off of, you know, a Hell's Angel guy and like it was big names. And then Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. And my heart stopped. Thank goodness. Because this was someone who had been through it years before I had. Yes who didn't have a model for how to survive or get exactly. out of it. I didn't no, know no. if there wasn't even a, a road out of this situation. None of us did. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she invited me up to her hotel room to have tea. Oh, that's so sweet. And it was just the most <laughs> so like, chill. Like she was, you know, giving me advice about some yeah. self-care. And um, so I'll be forever grateful to Very her nice. for that. Um, so one thing that I discovered in my research, and I'm just yeah. going to bring this up to like totally switch gears, is something that made me so mad. Mm -hmm. um, when I found out about this, I was utterly flabbergasted. Yeah. And I'm going to um, invite my partner, Chris, to mm -hmm. put this damn thing on the screen. What, what the heck is that? That's... Oh, sorry. Is a 10 foot long sea worm that was called the Bobbit uh, worm. You know what? I understand the tabloids, I understand comics, but a scientific yeah. world? Who, who named? Who gets? Who, who gets? <laughs> like, if someone came up with or like who discovered a like 
you know, beetle-like creature with like a stabby horn that yeah. like had like orgy coitus and stabbing and named it like the Nox Mantis, <laughs> I would be so mad. <laughs> Um, and in fact, what <laughs> oh made goodness. me even matter yeah. was uh. I saw, like, subsequent to whoever named this hmm. so cruelly, yeah. the BBC Earth, like, had it, because it's a real animal yeah. on Blue Planet, and then was like, ha, ha, ha. And, um... And I'm so disappointed in them because, we like, I have, love them. I love David Attenborough. So like, come on. And so I was wondering, with your permission, can I just, like, be mad at them on Twitter for you? Hey, guys, like, go I'm ahead. I'm just going to tweet this real quick. I just kind of got to get out of my system. And if you guys want to, like, retweet it so they actually see it, um. I would appreciate that. So I'm, I'm, here we go. I'll draft it here. So, <laughs> let's see. All right. How about this? That's funny. BBC. That's wonderful about technology. I'm saying this technology. because I know you're better than this. <laughs> cool worm bro. Remind me, what does it have to do with domestic violence and That's marital right. sexual assault? Yeah. That's right. Hashtag exactly. Lorena is a survivor. Hashtag not a worm. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. You know, that's We're wonderful good. about technology <laughs> that we actually can do this and we can do this with yeah. tip of our fingers. You know, we can reach out to many, you know, millions of people. Same thing as when John actually still reach out to me in, in my foundation through me because I have a foundation who is, you know, public and I can hide that. So he still reaches out to me. What? And, you know, he engages, yeah, he engaged with my, the people, my, my friends, my, the people who follow me on Facebook. He engaged into this, you know, kind of tug of war, you know, like I am innocent and stuff like that. I mean, you know, if you are, you know, obviously, I mean, you have to become my friend and I maybe have like a thousand friends if you request me tonight, tonight, uh, as a friend in Lorena Gallo Foundation. So you can see him engaging in things like that. And uh, it's, it's kind of sad because he never is accountable, you know. Like, that's what the whole perpetrators are. They're not accountable for their crimes that they commit. Yeah. So, and, and uh, domestic violence is rooted in control and abuse. So, obviously, he tried to be controlling that way, too. So, yeah. through my foundation, I mean, you know, yeah. this, is, in, this is insane. That is insane. Yeah, that, that was a little much. Um, so I definitely have to get to Q&A soon and I, yeah. and because I know you guys want to talk to her as well. I've been hogging yeah. it a little bit. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to just ask super quickly mm-hmm. about your documentary. Yes. What made you want to do a documentary? Well, like um, there's a little corner right there. It says, you know, the scandal you knew, the story you don't. And that's exactly what it is. I think uh, the time is right, you know, with the Me Too movement actually helped me to empower me to come up and said, you know what, let's revisit my story, even though it was told 26 years ago, but through the lens of the Me Too, now, you know, let's refocus on this event. And Jordan Peele, he used to be a comedian. Now he does, you know, movies and he create movies on social issues and that was very important to me for him to to tell the story and uh, the, you know the way it is 
Uh, so Amazon Prime put a wonderful team with Joshua Ruffay and uh, the amazing Amazon team that put together this project that I'm so proud of it. You know, it's, it's for all of you to see is, you know, this is not about me. This is about abuse uh, women and abuse victim. And uh, that's exactly what I wanted to show. I wanted to show how vulnerable victims are and how monsters, uh, the predators and abusers can be and how how uh, the tragic, you know, of domestic violence and the cycle of abuse. I wanted to show all that. And of course, they interview a lot of things. They get a lot of factual things. And uh, there's a lot, you know, that need to be learned here for the new generations of, as well. And they show you to be a real person. Like yes. you, you laugh. There were like a, so a really fun I'm moment human. where you're like, why are you calling me? I cut off your yes. penis. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> like, and... You know, oh, you're yeah. also someone who, like, has pets. Like, I know that you are, like, yes. loving pet parents, um, just oh like me. God, yes. oh. And, like, it just, it <laughs> yeah. freaking warms my heart because, so you know, Love it was dogs. not that long oh. ago that we looked like yes. that. Yes. Yes. It was very excruciating, painful, and... uh I, I don't have words to express, you know, those emotions that come. You know, I don't know if you feel the same, but it was like, to me, it was devastating. Um, I wanted to just to close the doors and be in a very dark place. You know, depression sink in and you don't even know how you're going to survive, you know, through all these things. So it's yeah. mentally, mentally draining. You you don't trust anybody. You, you just, uh, just, you need help. Yeah. Hopeless. Well, you feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. We don't look like that anymore. No. <laughs> we look like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, I like that picture. I love it. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, this, this mm -hmm. is thanks to Lorena. <laughs> so we're going to be taking some questions now, and I am yes. so sorry that I've been yeah. hogging, but I have received mm -hmm. your questions... And I am now pulling them up very respectfully. Let's see if I have the technological powers. <laughs> okay. Oh, lots of questions. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm just going to scan to make sure you haven't been mean. But otherwise, I think you're probably all good. Um, <laughs> They're okay. All right. Let's see. Mm -hmm. As people are asking me if I was trying to escape prison. Well, just keep this to you. <laughs> trying to find them. Um, let's see. Ah, here's an interesting one. So someone asks, someone wants to know more about sexual violence being rampant in the Latino community because of immigration status and they're feeling like they are unable to speak up. That's a very important police. question. I appreciate that question because I am, yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, it's very important. You know, the Latinx community as an immigrant, I feel that they have a lot of challenges still going on because of the current administration doesn't help. And actually, just not too long ago, they revoked giving visas to victims, women. They have suffering. They are suffering domestic violence in their country. So they can ask for asylum to come here, escaping domestic violence. So our communities and many communities, we are going to face challenges. And those are the gaps that we need to close and understand that we are the ones who choose our leaders 
And thank God, you know, Virginia is a blue state now. <laughs> yes, and it was wonderful. Um, so to me, it's very important that the communities have knowledge. And it all go back to education. Education is empowerment. That's something that nothing is going to take away from you. So I encourage that through education, empower yourself. And, you know, like I said, if we are in a community working together, we can make the changes. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Someone asked if you or I, but especially you because you're Lorena. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) If you have any advice for women who are accused or whose reputations are ruined on a smaller scale and what it is that you can do that you have done to reclaim your narrative, what advice would you give someone? Um, This is very important as well because... um, Without me talking about this social epidemics and public health epidemics as well, then I wouldn't be here. So thanks to the documentary, I have a bigger platform to reach out to more communities, to reach out even more wide, you know, worldwide. Um, And so it gave me strength. I wouldn't be here if it wouldn't be for my experience as a personal victim of sexual assault and a survivor of uh, domestic violence. Um... I think it's very important to participate and uh, taking care of yourself. I think it's very important that you, in order to help others, you are the one who have to start start with yourself taking care. It's very important. It's something that, you know, I always see, even when you fly, you know, in an airplane, you know, they tell you to put your oxygen first before you help others. It's the same concept. So everything starts from yourself first and taking care of your own before you help others is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Because you have to be, I'm sorry, Amanda, you have to be mentally, you know, um, you know, well, you know, your mental health have to be, you know, strong as well. And, you know, I went through a lot of therapists, I went through um, a lot of psychologists, and that to me, before, there was a taboo, there was a stigma, you know, to talk about, oh, wow, you know, you can go to a psychologist because people assume that you're crazy or, you know, you have some loose screw or whatever. No, I think it's health, it's very healthy, it's very healthy to take care of yourself, Whatever it is, whether you believe in something, start believing in yourself, believe in whatever you wanted to believe, whether it's nature, you know, a religion or something. Uh, trust is very important. And that's why I did this documentary as well, because I trusted them, you know, men to be involved. Uh, women too, you know. Um, with Amazon, we work with a lot of women as well. And I trust them. Because if I hold something, it doesn't get me further ahead, you know, like I cannot, that's why, you know, I wanted to talk to you about it. When you are bitter or when you hold a grudge, it holds you back. You cannot live like that. Yeah, I would, ag- I would agree. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I have an answer for yeah. how one can mm-hmm. restore the problem of reputation because ultimately yeah. I cannot control what yeah. other people believe. The only right. thing I can do is true. present myself to the world and yes. put good work into the world. Yes. And but I will say that there is one handy trick that I learned in prison um, when I was 
No, like, and it's because prison also makes you crazy. Um, I spent a lot of time alone um, mm-hmm. and with no one I felt like I could trust to talk to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as my family loved me and wanted to be there every second of the day right. with me, they literally couldn't. Yes. No one could hold my hand in there. Right. Right. And um, mm-hmm. what I ended up doing to try to understand what was happening to me and how it was affecting me yes. was I pretended that I was talking to a younger version of myself. Mm. And I would sit her down and I would say like, look, Amanda, I know you think you're a big shot, but this is what's going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how to get out of it, Mm. but let me just tell you what's going to happen. And telling the story of my trauma to a version of myself that was innocent and didn't know was a way for me to try to understand what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. And it was very therapeutic because suddenly it felt like this thing that was on top of me and that I was trapped inside was now in front of me. And me and myself and I could then look around at this thing and, and gain a grasp of it. Right. Like I said to, to this person who's asking that question, I, you know, whatever, every story is different and everybody's different. Everybody's unique. Um, you know, do what's best for you. You, as a victim, know that you are the best person who knows your situation. Mm. And, and you are the one who have to, that's what we have, you know, when I work with the shelters and I see a lot of cases like that. And as I'm a facilitator, um, you know, they tell the story and it's amazing how, you know, the changes that I see when the group of ladies are together in the table and we have discussions about each of them, you know, cases and they all tell the story. But then they found themselves like with their own answers. And it's uh, such a relief for me because I said to them, you know, to myself, she got it. And I know that she's going to be all right. And for the rest of it, that don't get it yet, but they're in the path to survive, to become survivors. I know it takes a little time and we're there. As long as they want us to be there, we're going to be there for them. And that's very special because that's exactly what I wanted to tell. Do whatever you think is going to help you eventually. Yeah. Someone wants to know how we can hold the media accountable. Well, <laughs> what do you think? I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way I think is, one, you infiltrate from the inside. Um, what are we all doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and two, um, I think that the one of the things that led to the media exploiting people the way that they have done has been because of a financial motivation. And that financial motivation comes ultimately from us. So if we stop consuming the clickbait, if we stop consuming tabloid media, if we start demanding context-driven, compassionate journalism, and that's where the money goes, yes, that will ultimately 
change also, the equation. Also, I wanted to say, if I may, I understand that we have a relationship here with the media, you know, and with all the respect, I mean, I know there is a job, there are human, and I believe that a lot of, in the 90s, there were a lot of more male-dominant, even though if a person wanted to print a good story about, you know, uh, sexual assault or domestic violence, you know, they go back and they have to report to their manager or the person ahead of them and they make them change the stories. So a lot of people felt that, oh, wow, I can't, this is my job. I don't want to lose my job. I had to do what my bosses tell me to do, right? So that was part of it as well. And um, so with that, it just came to my mind. Do you remember that film about and I'm trying to not to deviate too much of the story. Do you remember that film about Thelma and Louise? Of course, yeah. Okay, so that was actually made to be a, a movie, you know, and then a lot of uh, the men in Hollywood passed that. You know, they didn't want to do anything. And then one executive producer said, no, you know, I don't get it. You know, there's, she called it, quote, unquote, there's two bitches in a car. And I was like, okay, so whatever, you know, when I read this. But um, the thing is this, that it was a big hit. It had two major movie stars, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. And they were powerful, two women powerful. And it was made by this woman, writer, screenwriter, screenplayer, who eventually she ended up, I believe her name is Callie Keurig. And she ended up winning an award for that movie as well. But that tells you how we have changed and how women have become more powerful, you know. Now we have more women's writers and that has changed a lot in the media. That has changed, you know, it, it's the, the women has more power now. We have come a long ways, but there's much more to do to reach our equality, you know, gender equality. So... To go back to that question, yes, reporters are human beings and, you know, as much as they wanted to write a story, there are influences, you know, from people above them. And also, I um, understand that sometimes, you know, if you want to raise a bar, you know, as a journalist, you should call up and say, you know, your colleague, if you read something and say, you know what, this headline doesn't sound good. Call them up and say, you got to change this. You're dealing with this. So, you know, I think that will help out too, you know, among the community of journalists. So journalists holding themselves accountable Yes, as well. accountability is the word. Accountability for, for uh, predators, accountability for the media, accountability for, for everything. It's, it's basic, you know, accountability, accountability on society, we, us. Yeah. So this one, and this is going to have to be our last question. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, this one, but I'm pitching it to this one because it seems to be a question of self-diagnosis. Um, why is it that women in particular are obsessed with true crime? <laughs> what are we all doing here? Um, what do you think? I, I was invited. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, I mean, if I were to guess, you guys tell me. Okay, let's 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 see if I'm right. If I'm yeah. right, go yay. And if no, just be like no. What are you talking about? Um, 
Are we obsessed with it because, one, we're more likely to be the victims of crime than anyone else? <laughs> and is it also, too, because there's something about wanting to understand the inner workings of the human mind that we are just particularly sensitive to? Okay. Did I miss anything? Oh, power in society, okay, society, that's an interesting that's right. point. That's... Do you have any thoughts? Um, I think that women, you know, are curious about what's going to happen if there's a story, you know, like, uh, oh my God, maybe women put themselves into that story, you know, and think, you know, that could happen to myself. Because my story, believe it or not, that could have happened to any of us, any of women, but happened to me, unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe one more question. <laughs> I'll sneak one in. Okay, let's see. What have you learned about human nature through what you've been through? That we're not perfect. Mm. Nobody is. Yeah. No one is. You know what? There's I love that. Now. I love that about you because yeah. that's also sort of my takeaway from all of this is... I don't feel like a more judgmental person after everything that's happened. I'm definitely much more of a, well, wait a second. What's going on there? Like, what's, what information, what more information do I need to know? Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's an odd place to be when we're, when we're here and justice kind of demands us to judge. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, being human it's, kind of demands us yes, to take a step back and find not, a balance. Yeah, we're not perfect. And we're always going to be judgmental about anything and anybody, right? And that's just, uh, you know, it's like it goes well with curiosity. We're all going to be curious about it. That's part of being human. And also, it's part of being human to laugh, to have humor, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, like I said, it all kind of, you know, intertwined together. And uh, that's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us human. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, everyone, please, please put your hands together. You already are. Tell me, thank Lorena Gallo for sharing her story here with yeah, us. Tonight. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank you all for listening. Of course, as always, you know that at the end of my podcast, I thank my wonderful. Thank very handsome Elton Johnish partner, <laughs> Christopher Robinson. Hey, Boo, do you want to you like step out a second, say hi? Come here. Yay! <laughs> this podcast would not be possible without him and was recorded with the help of Malka Media in association with Sundance TV and AMC Digital Studios. Um, and just so you guys know, also season five of our podcast is coming out right now. And, um, and it's in association with a docuseries put out by Sundance called The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park, which is a story of the killing of Jennifer Levin back in the 80s by Robert Chambers. Yeah, Aww. it's an important story. And so be sure to check that out. It is just a bonkers story. Talk about victim blaming. So yes. anyway, yeah. thank you all. Thank you all for being here. We wish you a wonderful you. night. Um, go have fun. Go swing dancing. I don't know. That's what I want to do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you, Lorena.
go even deeper, watch the two-part docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, now streaming on SundanceTV.com and the Sundance TV app.